Before I introduce Adrian to you, um, I just want to read this, this evening's passage. Um, we're going to read from John 4. I'm not going to read all of it because it would take me about five minutes to read it all, but I'm just going to read uh, John 4. Uh, it's the story of the woman at the well. I'm going to read from it. Then I'm going to introduce Adrian to you and he'll come up and speak to us. Um, I'm going to read it from the slides because it's a slightly different version to our normal Bibles. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. The woman said, I know the Messiah. This is a bit later on. She's, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we, are no, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. So in a moment, um, Adrian's going to come up and speak to us. Adrian came and spoke to us this morning and it was, it was just an incredible gift to the church. Adrian uh, is... Uh, his day job is going to different churches around different, um, the New Frontiers network of churches. He's formerly a, a BBC journalist, sports journalist, um, and you can tell that communication gift has, has stayed with him. He's an incredible communicator of the Christian faith, and I think we're all in for an incredible treat this evening. So why don't you guys give um, Adrian a warm welcome? Fantastic. Well, thank you for that lovely introduction, and thank you for your warm welcome. It's great to be with you. And for those of you I don't know, I thought maybe I'd just show you a picture of my wife and kids. So uh, there they are. Thank you for that, R, uh, by the way. Um, And I thought maybe I'd just begin by telling you the hilarious true story of how we chose the name of our fourth child. 
When my wife Julia went into labour with our fourth child, it was all happening really fast. So fast that we did something we'd never done before. We called an ambulance. And so as we are racing in the back of the ambulance to the hospital, it occurs to me that we don't have another girl's name, if this is going to be another girl, because we have used up all of our girls' names on our first three daughters. And so looking for a bit of last-minute inspiration for a name, you may be amused to know that I asked the ambulance lady, by the way, what's your name? And she said, Tanith. I said, pardon? She said, Tanith. I said, oh, um, how do you spell that? She said, T-A-N-I-T-H. She said, do you know what it means? I said, no. She said, it means the serpent lady. (laughs) So we called our baby girl, Emma. You can go on to the next slide now. (laughs) Now, the reason why we had Emma is because we wanted to have a relationship with her. We're definitely going to love her. And the thought that Emma might love us back was so exciting for us that we were thrilled to bring Emma into the world. And the Bible says that the reason why God made us is a little bit like that. That God is a loving father who brought you into the world wanting a relationship with you, a relationship which is good for this life, it's so good, it actually goes on into the next life. Now, if you're not sure that you have got that relationship with God, then I'd love to give you an easy opportunity to begin that relationship afresh uh, this evening. So maybe you're not sure, maybe you don't know for sure that if perish the thought, you were to die tonight, you're not sure that you go to heaven. You'd say, well, I hope so. But you don't have to hope so anymore because even though none of us are good enough, Jesus Christ is good enough. So all we have to do is put our trust in him because he does all the work. So if he does all the work, then it will be all about him. So we could be sure. So... At the end, what I'd love to do is to invite the band to come back, and we'll stand up, we'll sing a song, and then off the back of that song, I'll come back and I'll pray a prayer. So the words of the prayer will be on the screen. And then I'll just say, well, you know, if you want to say yes, if you want to pray this prayer, then we'll invite everybody to leave a comment on the comment cards that uh, Jeremy mentioned just a minute ago. And then while everybody's writing, you know, their comments, like, what did you think of of the evening? You know, how could we have done it differently? What did you like? What didn't you like? While everyone's writing... You can just tick the box that says, yeah, I'd like to make the prayer my prayer. So you can do that uh, if you'd like to later on. Okay, great. Well, as you already know, for the next few minutes, let's have a look at what happened when Jesus met someone who it seems had spent years chasing happiness. It looks like she had almost given up hope of ever finding it. This is a woman who had been looking for significance and approval.
Now, by speaking to a Samaritan, Jesus ignores a wall of hatred to the divided Jews from Samaritans for 400 years. By speaking to a woman as a Jewish man, Jesus cuts right through, you know, Middle Eastern social protocol. So she's surprised. Jesus has crossed a racial divide. Jesus has crossed a religious divide. Jesus has just crossed a gender divide to show this woman radical acceptance. And folks, Jesus was always getting into trouble for doing this sort of thing. You see, he doesn't mind what class you think you are, what race you are. Jesus was always going to the parties of the wrong people. And as we're going to see later, this woman was also in her own community considered to be a kind of moral outsider. So she was being shunned by the people in her town, and that's probably why she was going out to draw water at a time of day when she could be pretty confident there wouldn't be anybody else around to criticize her. And it is typical of Jesus that here he deliberately goes out of his way to show love to someone who may well have thought that they weren't good enough for God. Maybe I can try and explain what I mean. I don't know if you ever watched the TV show Dragon's Den. Do you ever watch Dragon's Den? Oh, okay. Um, Well, let let me just explain the format if you're not familiar with the show. Um, On Dragon's Den, there are five mega wealthy investors. These are the dragons, yeah? And they lounge in their low-slung chairs in, in the dragon's den. And they're so wealthy that they leave large wads of cash on little tables so that we can see just how wealthy they are. Look, I've got lots of money, hey. And so then the format of the show is that one by one, sometimes you'll find that a nervous or timid-looking innovator you know, uh, somebody who's invented something, they'll come in and then they'll pitch, sometimes nervously, sometimes hesitantly, they'll pitch their business idea and they are looking for someone to believe in them, someone to back them, someone to invest in them. And then, sadly, what often happens on Dragon's Den is that one by one, the dragons sum up why they're not going to invest in this person, why they don't believe in them. And they'll usually finish their withering analysis by saying, and for that reason, I'm out. And the next dragon will say, well, you're a nice enough guy, but I just don't think you've got what it takes. So for that reason, I'm out. And the next dragon will say, yeah, and for this reason, I'm afraid, I'm out. And it's almost as if when Jesus meets this woman... He's saying to, do you know what? For the very reason that everybody else in this town has said, you're out? For that reason, I'm in. For the very reason that everybody else seems to have rejected you? For that reason, I accept you. This morning, this evening, Jesus is in. It's like Jesus comes along to you this evening And says what he says to this woman. I'm interested in you. I'm going to stop and talk to you. This evening Jesus is in. Now notice that this woman. She didn't go to the well 
in order to meet Jesus. No, she had no idea who Jesus was. She didn't know that anybody else was going to be there. As far as we know, she wasn't on a religious search. In the same way, I wasn't looking to meet Jesus. I wasn't on a spiritual search. I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. What happened to me was I then met quite a large group of Christians, and they had a sense of peace and joy that wasn't dependent on their circumstances. Now, why was that appealing to me? Was it perhaps because I was unhappy at the time? No, looking back now, I was very happy at the time. Like me, this woman wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus came into her life unexpectedly and unannounced. And Jesus values her as a woman, as a woman who has been made in the image of God. And we ask, does Jesus value me? The answer is yes, and it's not a case of mistaken identity. Maybe on this subject, maybe I could just tell you about a second funny thing that happened on the same day, the day that Emma was born. Folks, all four of our children have all been born by caesarean section. And what that means is that I have to Uh, dress up in the kind of medical garb, like the blue overalls. So I'm there for the the operation. So I I change out of my normal clothes, and I put on the blue overalls, and I also have to wear this sort of blue shower cap thing that on me looks really ridiculous. I mean, I'm not quite sure why, because I haven't got any hair. So, I mean, what's the problem we're trying to avoid here? But I've got the blue shower cap thing on, and I also have to wear these white Wellington boots. Again, I'm not really sure why, but that's part of the outfit. So I walk into the operating theatre, expecting to see my wife, but she's not there. My wife, Judy, she's still next door, um, being prepared, or whatever the word is. So she's not there. So I walk into the operating theatre. There's just me on my own. There's this one nurse who's standing over the other side of the room. So it's just me and her. And so I introduce myself. I say, oh, hello, uh, I'm Adrian. She says, oh, hello, I'm Sarah. I said, oh, um, hi, um, have you been working here at the hospital for long, I say? And she says, well, uh, no, actually, only two weeks. I've been, I'm based at the other hospital. I said, oh, so do you live over this? Oh, no, I live right over the other side of London, she says. So I'm just sort of passing the time of day chatting to her. So I say, um, have you been... In the operating theatre for many of these caesarean section operations, I say. And she's, oh, yeah, she's, oh, great. I mean, over the years, over the years, I don't know, loads, maybe a hundred, maybe two hundred, she says. How about you? I said, well, actually, this is my fourth. She says, really? She says, only your fourth, she says. And I thought, what a strange question. Because I think falls a lot. Don't you think falls a lot? I mean, if I went down the street, right, I walked to Waterloo Station now, and I stood on the concourse of Waterloo Station with a clipboard and a pen, and I just started stopping men at random, saying, hello, sorry to bother you, sir. I just want to ask you a question, just doing a survey. Sir, how many caesarean section operations have you personally attended? Most men would say none. Some men would say one. Maybe a few men might say two. But to find somebody else like me who would say four? That would be quite unusual, don't you think? Yeah. But when I say to her, actually, this is my fourth, she replies, really, she says? Only your fourth? To which I say, well, yeah, actually, 
all three of our previous children have also all been born by cesarean section. And when I say that, she bursts out laughing. She says, ah! She said, you're the dad. I said, yeah. She said, I thought you were the surgeon. And of course, from her point of view, it was an easy mistake to make. I must have had an air of competence. She must have looked at me and thought, oh, there's someone who could easily perform a complicated medical procedure. But no, no, really, it was, it was just a case of mistaken identity. Do you know the most amazing thing about you? The most amazing thing about me is that this is not a case of mistaken identity. God knows all the best that there is to know about me. God knows all the worst that there is to know about me. God knows all the best that there is to know about you. God knows all the worst that there is to know about you. And he's in. He's in. And as we're going to see, actually Jesus already knows all about this Samaritan woman. This isn't a case of mistaken identity. Jesus wants you. He's for you. And he's not against you. And he's drawing you to himself. This woman is being drawn to Christ. Now what does Jesus mean when he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again? He means that until we come to him, We'll always have this faint sense of striving, longing, looking forward to the next thing. We'll never be completely satisfied. And folks, what's brilliant about this woman is that by the end of the story, she realizes the reason why she's still thirsty and she's not yet satisfied is because she's separated from God. You see, Jesus is offering us something this evening that is so much better than well water. Is there more to life than this? Jesus' answer is a massive yes. In fact, it turns out that you and I have been too easily pleased. It turns out that God is more committed to our happiness than we are. So Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. In other words, hey, if you knew that eternal life really is genuinely on offer right now. And if you knew that it's been offered to you as a gift by Jesus, the son of God. If you knew that right now, you'd say, oh, wow, (laughs) Uh, Jesus, hi, Um, could I have your eternal life, please? And Jesus would answer, yes, absolutely. This is why I've come to the planet, to give you this gift. But when Jesus offers her eternal life, she hasn't yet understood at this point what he's on about. So the woman said to him, sir, um, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go. Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man who you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. So Jesus suddenly changes the subject. So he suddenly gets personal. He says, go, call your husband. 
Why say that? I mean, why change the subject? Folks, Jesus didn't change the subject. He's staying on exactly the same subject. See, she's been saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not spiritually thirsty. She's been saying, that's not my deal. And Jesus is saying, right, so the fact that you have five husbands, what does that tell you about you? Jesus is saying, you don't think that you're spiritually thirsty, but really you deeply thirst for acceptance, you thirst for significance, you thirst for God. It's just that you don't recognize your thirst for what it really is. Jesus is saying, look, you've been drinking at the fountain of uh, male approval, and now you're fed up with it, aren't you? Because you see, each time you got married, you thought, now, you see, this next guy, this this guy I come with right now, he's going to make me happy. He's different from the others. He's going to make me happy. But each time, Jesus is saying, Each time you've been disappointed, after five disappointments, Jesus is saying, you've lost your spark. Can I ask you this evening, somewhere along the road of life, did you lose your spark? Jesus is hinting, look, the light that once burned bright in you has now become dimmed by bitter experience. Jesus is hinting, these husbands, they've been like pseudo saviors for you, but they didn't deliver. They didn't last. They didn't even stay. And this current bloke, the bloke who you're with at the moment, what do we know about him? He makes you come out and haul water for him in the heat of the day. He's a false master too. And in just the same way, somebody could be sitting here this evening in these gray chairs thinking, Well, yeah, I mean, I wish I could have faith. But you have already got more than enough faith. All we need to do is transfer the faith that we have already got from where it currently is to Christ. You've already got more than enough faith. All we need to do is transfer our hopes from where they're currently set to Christ. Because there is already some place where you and I are going... For that spiritual deep love. There's somewhere you and I are going where we're drinking deep for that spiritual deep love. Hey, we're all human. Oh, yeah, yeah. In, in her case, it happens to be these men. In our case, it could be something, I don't know what it is for you and I. It could be our status, our appearance, our family, our home, our future, our job, our career. It could be for us. That our life is bound up with being accepted by that particular group of people. But the good news is that Jesus comes to you this evening and says, I've got living water. If you drink from me, you will never thirst again. Wow. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Boom. This is a massive moment. A massive moment. Now the way that Jesus very helpfully, very very gently helps this 
woman is so impressive. You see, first, he shows us where we have already got our hopes. You see, he shows us who our pseudo-saviors and false masters are. And then he can bring the conversation around and say, hey, here's the living water. I'm the Jewish Messiah. Jesus can say, look, I'm the one. I'm the one who 322 Old Testament prophecies and predictions, all of which were all written down at least 400 years before I was even born. These 400 um, years past 322 predictions, I'm going to fulfill every single one. I'm the Jewish Messiah. I'm him. I'm the one. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come. See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You see, now she's free. Now you can't keep her down. She's bouncing around the town. She's found a new source, a new joy. She's experienced radical acceptance. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. And we know this man really is the savior of the world. Hmm. So what? What makes Jesus the savior of the world? Well, he's the savior of the world because he saves us from ourselves. He saves us from our pseudo-saviors and our false masters. He saves us from our tendency to make idols out of people and things. He saves us from those places where we've got our hopes. He saves us from those times in our life when we put other things first Instead of God or ahead of God. And of course he goes on to become the savior of the world ultimately when he dies on the cross. Now, why is that considered to be such a big deal? Well, maybe I can get into this by uh, telling you a funny story. Jeremy mentioned that I used to do a completely different career. And then I gave that up to start working Uh, for a Christian church, as a Christian minister. And on the very first day, folks, of this new church work thing, the church sent me to a very plush, posh, private, independent boys' school in Surrey. And they sent me to take a double period of A-level general studies. And even now, I don't know what that is. Anyway, so I arrive in this classroom, and there are these 17, very bright 17-year-old boys. They're sort of sitting around in a horseshoe shape. And I say, this is how the conversation starts. I say, in your opinion, I ask, beginning the A-level general studies, in your opinion, I say, are there any crimes that you think are so serious that those people who commit that crime should never get to go to heaven when they die. Oh, yeah, they said, oh, yeah. I said, like, what? They said, well, like, murder. Murderers should never get to go to heaven when they die. I said, oh, uh, 
okay. I said, are there any other sins? You know, maybe down the other end of the spectrum. I mean, these, these are sins which God's just going to sort of brush under the carpet. I mean, th- these are sins that are going to turn out to be no big deal. Oh, yeah. They said, oh, yeah. I said, like what? They said, like mild, mild shoplifting. I said, what? As opposed to sort of like hardcore habitual shoplifting. He said, yeah, mild shoplifting. God's not too fussed about mild shoplifting. I said, right. I said, are there any other sins that, you know, God's just going to sweep under the car? Sins that are going to turn out to be no big deal. Oh, yeah. They said, oh, yeah. I said, like what? They said, like lying. God's not too fussed about lying. I said, guys, we're really making some progress. Because during the first five minutes of our A-level general studies, you have established that at one end of the spectrum, murderers should never get to go to heaven when they die. But down the other end of the spectrum, you have established that mild shoplifting and lying are okay. I said, guys, somewhere between these two extremes, there must be a cut-off point sin whereby you can mild shoplift all you want down this end of the spectrum, but the moment you commit that cut-off point sin, you don't. Get to go to heaven when you die. I said, guys, what is that cut-off point sin? And one boy rose to his feet. And I said, what is that cut-off point sin? And he said, serious fraud. (laughs) I'll never forget the way he said it. Serious fraud. And of course, the moment he said it, everybody in the classroom, we, we all burst out laughing. And we burst out laughing because we thought, you know what? We probably need God to tell us what God's cutoff point is. And we realized how ridiculous we were being as we in our wisdom, as we decided what God's cutoff point should be. And actually, in the Bible, the Bible's claim is that God has told us what his cutoff point is, that actually all of us have sinned, that we're all falling short of the glory of God, that we're all cut off. Speaking personally, there are There are loads of times when either in terms of my thoughts or my words or my deeds. I mean, the God who really exists, that God, he would know all about me. You know, all about the times. The God who really exists knows all about the times when I knew what the right thing to do was, but I didn't do it. All the times when I personally have taken the gifts of food, fun, friends, and falling in love. And I've just kind of eased God the gift giver to the margins of my life. All the times when I have just taken the gift of life for granted. And the Bible says that the result of sin is death. I mean, I'm not perfect enough for a perfect heaven. The last book of the Bible, Revelation, says about heaven, nothing impure will ever enter it. Well, that counts me out. Because If heaven really is a perfect place, I would pollute a perfect heaven. So if I can't have eternal life, I'm facing eternal death. In fact, the Bible says that the result or the wages of sin is death. The death penalty, that's what I'm facing. But it's very hard to imagine facing the death penalty. Imagine if I lived in Florida. And imagine that I did commit a crime in Florida for which the penalty is death by lethal injection. 
And what would happen to me? Well, I'd get arrested and maybe I'd spend the best part of a year in jail. I'm just waiting for my trial to come around. And then eventually, well, you know the routine. I'd be put into my orange jumpsuit. I'd have my ankle shackled. I've got my wrists handcuffed. And of course, I arrive at the courthouse. Now, let's imagine that in my case, the evidence is overwhelming. I am at the end of my trial declared guilty as charged. So that all remains at the end of my trial is for the judge to hand down the sentence of death by lethal injection. So there I am standing in the dock, just like I'm standing before you now, just waiting for those fateful words to be handed down to me. But just imagine the moment before the sentence is passed and the penalty is applied, just imagine a commotion at the back of the courtroom. Somebody I don't recognize, a stranger, bursts his way in, pushes past the guards, makes their way all the way up the aisle. But rather than stopping the trial because of this disturbance, let's imagine the judge allows this disturbance to continue. Then let's imagine the stranger comes right up to the dock where I'm standing and then pushes me out of the way. So that now I'm standing on the courtroom floor and I'm looking on at this complete stranger who's standing in my place. Now here's a question. How would you feel if you were in this situation as the judge proceeds to pass a sentence of death upon the stranger rather than on you? Well, there are gasps at, you know, your relatives in the gallery, all the press and TV and radio reported that they're like, what on earth? But then the judge bangs his, bangs his gavel on the desk. Clark, of course, says, all rise. Everybody stands up. The judge walks out. And sure enough, the guards come to you and they unshackle your ankles. They take the handcuffs off your wrists. They take the orange jumpsuit off you. They put the orange jumpsuit on the stranger. They shackle his ankles. They handcuff his wrists. And they lead the stranger off to the wagon to take him to death row. And as he passes you, of course, you grab his arm and you say, I've got to stop you. Why? Why on earth would you choose to give up your life to death just so that I can go free? Why would you choose to substitute yourself? Why would you choose to die instead of me? In my place, I don't even know you. Why are you doing this for me? You ask. And imagine if he replies, well, you see, it's like this. I really do love you. And you think, what? Who says that? I mean, is this Hollywood? I really, what? What sort of cheese is that? You can't take it in. I mean, it seems too good to be true. You think, maybe maybe this is like a TV show and everyone in the courtroom is an actor apart from me. So they all know what's going on. I'm the only one that doesn't. You can't figure it out. You walk up towards the foyer of the courtroom. Nobody seems to be hassling you. And so you walk through the courtroom foyer doors and there is like a bank of TV and radio and press. They all want a piece of you. And so they pummel you with questions. But one of the reporters says, hey, listen, I need to tell you this. That guy, the guy who just swapped with you, the guy just going out there in the orange jumpsuit to death row, that guy, he may be a stranger to you. He's not a stranger to me. I went to school with him. Recognized him. As soon as he came in, I recognized him. Listen, I can tell you something about him that you might want to know. That guy, the guy who just swapped with you, that's the judge's son. In fact, that is the judge's son. 
only son. Well, now you're in awe of the judge. A few minutes later, the judge leaves his chambers and he crosses the courtroom foyer. He's going to his car at the end of his working day. And so you grab his arm and you say, Your Honor, I've got to stop you. I've got to ask you, Your Honor, why, why on earth, Your Honor, would you choose to allow your one and only son to die instead of me? I mean, why would you allow him to die in my place? Your Honor, what's in it for you? Your Honor, why are you doing this for me? And imagine if he says back to you, well, you see, it's like this. I really do love you. Still, you can't really take it in. But the judge gets in his car. When the press and the radio and TV people are finished, you just walk out the door through a side door. You're just trying to get away from everybody, get some headspace. You're walking along the road. And after a while, a car pulls up right in front of you with tinted windows that were down. And there the car door opens. Out of the car steps the judge. And your heart sinks. You thought, he's come to arrest me. But the judge walks up to you and instead of arresting you, just imagine that judge giving you a massive hug. And as the judge holds you and speaks kindly to you and reassures you, in that moment the penny drops that you really are free. Folks, something like that was really happening for you. In around 33 AD, on a hill outside Jerusalem, as on that day, God, the judge, looked down upon his one and only son, Jesus. And as Jesus died, not by lethal injection, but by crucifixion, as Jesus died on the cross, somehow God treated Jesus as if Jesus had committed all of the sins of everybody who would ever believe. All of the sins of everybody who, in a few minutes, just ticks that box to say, yeah, I want to make that prayer my prayer. In that moment, as Jesus dies, Jesus takes the rap for it instead of you, instead of me. In that moment, as Jesus dies, you and I can go free. And these Samaritans have worked out that Jesus really is the Savior. And if he's not already, he can be your Savior in just a few moments' time. Hey, this is exciting. Look how we finish. Look at how the woman in the story responds. She says, hey, guys, she says to the townspeople, hey, guys, come and meet him. Isn't he great? So so now she's going to the people who before she was avoiding. She doesn't mind what they think anymore. Why? She's got a new self-image. She goes to the people who she was avoiding. She doesn't mind what they think anymore. Now she's finally fully satisfied. She's got the living water. She'll never thirst again. (laughs) She's found this person called Jesus who satisfies a need for approval and significance. She's now got eternal life. How did she get the eternal life? Because she said yes to Christ. 
when she had the chance. And now we have the same chance that she had. You can say yes to Christ. You can have eternal life. You can come to him. And if you do come to him in a few moments' time, God the Father will give you a massive hug. He'll hold you. He'll speak kindly to you. I am your father. And I'm really proud of you. And you, this evening, can be embraced back in the arms of your loving, heavenly father. You know, it is a fact of history that Three days after Jesus' dead body had been buried, his tomb was found to be empty. And the reason why many years ago now I started, I turned around, I started following Jesus is because I reached a point where I became convinced by the historical evidence that Jesus must have risen physically from the dead. And because Christ has broken through the barrier of death. Well, that means that if, if you put your trust in him, you will too. Just as Jesus has punched a hole through the barrier of death, if you put your trust in him, you'll follow him through that barrier and you'll be with him forever. You'll have eternal life. Why? Because you're in Christ. So what happens to him happens to you. So we're going to sing a song. And when this song ends, I'll come back up here and there'll be a prayer on the On the screen, I'll read the prayer, then I'll pray the prayer, and then I'll simply say, hey, if you want to make that prayer your prayer, then while everybody's leaving a comment and people will say, you know, what did they like about the evening? What didn't they like? How could we have done this differently? Give us your honest feedback. We genuinely value your comments, your feedback. While everybody's writing something, you can just tick the box that says, yeah, I I want to make that prayer my prayer.